for me. I want to welcome you to our series. Thanks for the clock and thanks for the camera. Uh, I want, this is our series on Empowered. And what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit coming upon in order for God to do his ministry through us. That's what we're doing. Okay? Now, I want to show you something just real briefly. The Lord is not just telling us how to do this, talking head stuff. He's actually showing us what it looks like. Part of that showing has been what's been coming out ever since I got sick. We, before I got sick this summer, we were raising up people from this congregation to preach because we knew we were supposed to do that. But since I got sick this summer, God has taken it and put it in the hyperdrive. He's done, a, he's done a whole new thing. I wish you could see how the sermons are coming together with me and with people that I'm asking to preach as I pray about it and ask the Lord who's next and why and so on. And even to the point that I asked Kevin Perales at one point, as he talked about, I asked Kevin Perales, I think you're the next one to speak. And he said, no. And I said, okay, and went back to the Lord and started praying. And then I got to a certain place and all of a sudden, I just went, you know, and then I was going, I really think this is supposed to be Kevin, and I had some reasons why, and then he emails me and says, you know what, God started speaking to me, and here's something that's been bouncing around in my head for a while, and I went, see, that's the message. It literally was the next passage in Luke. It was just, I mean, I'm just, I just can't even begin to tell you what it looks like from my side. It feels like what I just talked about with worship, that, that the Holy Spirit's actually leading this whole church in everything. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I have been deeply involved in church things for 30. And I'm telling you, I have never seen anything like what's happening right now. And I've seen incredible things. I, I, I just wasn't on the sort of, you know, denying its power side of things. I just sort of popped right over into the other ditch. And I've seen, I've seen all kinds of God move, all kinds of movements, all kinds of revival type things and everything else. And I've never seen anything like this what God's doing here, the way that he's raising up people, the messages that they're bringing, how they're bringing them, how it's fitting, how he is the one. I really feel almost like I'm a spectator. All I got to do is find what he wants me to do next, and what he'll do is incredible. So can I just say thank you to Kevin, but thank you to this body, because you're the ones that are allowing this. And I know that it's a little unnerving, you know, you know, it's just different, okay? But I want to thank this body for being who you are and for embracing this and trying. I think that's one of the reasons why God's able to do it, right? If everybody was saying no, I think he would just say fine and go somewhere else on, and do it. He would still be here and helping us with other things. But he wouldn't be doing what he's doing right now, which is leading us in this intimate way. So thank you to this church, all right? Having said that, I'm now into the sermon proper, and the sermon proper goes like this. It starts out with something that is absolutely fundamental to our walk in Christ. This is so important, and interestingly enough, there's a large section of the evangelical body that doesn't actually believe what I'm about to say, and all I can say to that is, is I got a big problem with that, but you know, I still love them. They, they still love Christ, and in the end, none of us is perfect on theology, right? But the truth is, and the important thing is, and something that I need because of the way that God has taught me and invested in me to invest back into people is this. He has given us real free will. Not the illusion of free will. He's given us real free will. In the garden, it was in the form of a tree where he said, you may eat of all the trees, including that one. But don't eat of that one because in the day that you do, you're going to be separated. You're going to die. Right? So that's a choice right there. A real choice. Not an illusory choice. 
Not one that appears to be a choice. I, again, I, my biggest problem with those who would say that God doesn't give us free will is that the Bible, as we're going to see over and over today, is filled with free will. Choice, 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 choice. And if God all the time is telling us to make a choice, but we really don't have a choice, what does that make him out to be? You know, something funky. At the very least, a trickster. See what I mean? At the very least, deceptive. Do you think God's deceptive? I think he's plain. I think the things that we have trouble with, we just have to keep working with. We're going to get to a place today that we're going to have big trouble because here's the point. God has given us absolute and genuine free will. The way he did it after the garden was this, by being invisible, by not just showing up. The sun rises every day. If we could wake up every day and look and see God, then you would not ever have free will. You could make choices still. The angels made choices. They could see into the face of God, knew that he was real, and they still chose against him, right? But you wouldn't have absolute, true free will. The only way that you can have absolute and true free will is if God is not revealing himself in that just sort of, there he is standing there, now try and deny that. Because you see, that's the fountain, that's the thing. When we, can, when we can say, I see all kinds of evidence for him, the scripture says, everything that he's created has his fingerprint in it in a way that if you'll just look, you'll find him. And not just find him, but you'll find out who he is in the things that he made. His character, his nature, his heart, everything that you need to know about God, you can find out by, by not seeing him, but by looking at what he does and what he did. See that? But at the same time, okay, if he was sitting right here right now, then people would still have some choice, but they couldn't. But you see, when they can't do that, now all of a sudden what they do is, if you can deny that God even exists, now you have true free will. All the way down to the depths of it. You see that? So this is important for us to get a hold of. That this is why God did this. And, and I say all the time, therefore, that God is not proving himself because he gave us free will. So you've heard me say that how many times? If you've been here for a few years, you've heard me say God doesn't prove himself, what, several hundred times? Now here's what I'm going to say today. God proves himself. <laughs> In Scripture all the time we see God proving, 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 proving. Now it's going to be a little more nuanced than this as you could imagine. But let me just make this clear about practically how this is helpful in our lives. Do you have a family member that doesn't know the Lord? Do you have somebody that you love with all your heart that doesn't know the Lord? Do you? I'm sure everybody does, right? Somebody you love that doesn't know the Lord. Now let's just say that they got cancer or that they had a tremendously horrible financial reversal. If God proves himself, wouldn't it be incredible to be able to go up to them and say, be healed so that they would get healed and then they would also know God? So not only would they be healed or financially made better, but it would, be, it would happen in such a way as that it would come to know God. How many people have ever wanted that to happen to somebody? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that true? Haven't we, God, just heal them and then they'll know you. So if God does this, or even something like it, it would be really helpful if we knew what that was, wouldn't it? So that we could know how and why he does that. So that's what we're going to plumb today, all right? Okay, who's our prayer? 
Oh, Maureen. Oh, this is awesome. Maureen, who's also one of the people who has preached to great effect here and so on, uh, just part of the Thatcher clan uh, and just an awesome woman of God. Love you so much. Can't wait until you preach again. Uh, so uh, pray for the sermon. Lift up another church too. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and thank you that there is no God like you. Lord, you long to feed us from your word. And Lord, I would ask that today you would flow through, Kurt. Holy Spirit, quicken those things uh, to his heart and mind. Let them just flow out so that we would be, have our thirst quenched. Lord, that we would know more about you. Just pray, Lord, that you would speak to each heart, every one of us, Lord, that we might know you better, that we might be able to walk out our love relationship with you. And, Lord, I would just lift up the Evergreen Church in Des Moines today. Lord, I pray that, again, you would speak through Bruce, Pastor Bruce. Lord, that you would uh, feed his flock. Amen. Lord, that they would know that you are there, that you are present. And, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each heart in a new and fresh way. Amen. Lord, we long to hear fresh things from you today. Amen. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Is that Bruce Norquist that you're praying for? Oh, my gosh, if you need to meet Bruce Norquist. This guy is just genius smart, but he's just such a wonderful real guy, too. Awesome. All right. Now, Kevin <clears throat> took us into uh, Levi the tax collector, Jesus eating with Levi the tax collector, right? And they said, you know, don't you know that these are horrible sinners and you shouldn't be praying with them and you shouldn't even be with them and you shouldn't be anywhere near them and all. Don't you have any discernment, blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick, right? And then he says about repentance. And so Kevin launched on that repentance thing and gave us that great sermon. But see where we are, and here's where we're picking it up. And remember now, when we're doing Luke, the way that we're doing Luke this time, we're not doing the story, and then the story, and then the next story, and then the next story that's in there. What we're doing is we're sort of peeling the stories back and we're saying that God inspired Luke to write this story and then this story for a reason. So usually we preach the story and we don't really make the connection with the next story. What we're doing is we're peeling back the stories so that we can see that God prompted Luke to preach it in such a way as that there was a flow. And what I'm arguing and have been showing is that that flow is God teaching us how to trust him, how to understand what he's doing and how he's doing it. In other words, these stories may be separated by a week or more, but the point is the way that they're being related to us is teaching us something step by step. See that? And by the way, I want to say, Luke wrote it down for that reason in that way too. He knew that there was a progression of things. It's not just that, but the disciples saw this too. When he was making these arguments, it's the same way that he taught the disciples as he's teaching us how to do this stuff, what this is all about, what the foundations are, etc., okay? Got it? So, having done that, we're going to capture three of these stories quickly, and I'm going to be making the connection between them as much as I am the story itself. Watch. Okay, number one. One day some people said to Jesus, this is right after the Levi thing, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Now remember, they came to Jesus and said, don't you have any discernment about these sinner tax collectors? Don't you have any discernment? And he shut them down, right? So now they're going to plan B. 
you guys aren't very holy. Look, it's not just the Pharisees that fast and pray, but John's disciples. You like John. You don't like us, but you like John. And even John's disciples are fasting and praying, and you guys look a little bit like partiers. Right? Do you see it? He's saying, you guys look like partiers, and that doesn't seem very holy to us. That doesn't seem very religious to us. And so, see what he's doing? They're, 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 they're arguing this. Now, what Jesus says back to them is, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Now, if they'd have been actually asking him a question to which they wanted an answer, to which they were willing to hear what the answer was and learn from it, he just told them, they're not celebrating because I'm here. <laughs> and I'm God. And so how could you fast and pray for God to come when he's standing in front of you? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. See it? That's what he actually said to them. But of course, they're not actually looking for that. They're looking for something else. So he says, do the wedding guests fast by celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Look, I'm not saying that we're irreligious, right? Because someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. By the way, how's he going to be taken away from them? By being killed. Who's going to kill him? The people who are asking him this question. <laughs> you see it? Someday I'm not going to be here, and the reason why happens to be you <laughs> and your hard-heartedness, okay? But bottom line, someday they are going to go, and then they'll fast and pray. Fasting and praying is important, okay? If, if somebody thinks that by the incredible grace that God has revealed to the modern church that, you know, makes it to where we don't get into legalisms about drinking wine or about doing all this, if somebody takes from that, that what it means is, is that you can be a drunkard and a glutton, well, then you've misinterpreted what's actually happening. Because God has given us grace does not give us license. God has given us grace, but there still is this thing. Don't you understand that this world is not what God would have it to be and that he is coming again and we are to fast and pray for his presence to come again and to establish what it is that he wants to do in the world in the way that he wants to do it, right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying they will be taken away and, and then they're going to fast, you know? Right? All right. Then Jesus gives them this illustration. Now watch the flow, because the flow is what we're trying to catch. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. The new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine, ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. And it is, right? Anybody drank old wine before? It's pretty good. Now, I'm just going to do the wine part because it's, it's, it's the same illustration in both. You understand what he's saying here, right? Watch. See, they didn't use barrels back in those days. They used leather. So they would take leather and they would make a a big, big uh, bladder, basically. And then they would pour wine into it. And what does wine do when it's fermenting? Well, I'm sorry, it ferments, right? But when it ferments, what happens? It expands. It releases a gas, see? And as it's doing that, it's expanding. So when you got new supple leather, that just like our skin has the ability to be stretched, it stretches 
and can contain the wine as it's aging and getting better. Right? But if you then emptied that bladder and poured yet another batch of new wine in it, what would happen? Now it's old. <laughs> it's not so stretchy. And it would burst, and it would ruin the wine, it would ruin the wineskin. The whole thing would be a bad thing, right? Now, now, watch this. See, what he's saying to these people is he's saying, you're happy where you are. I get it. Because why? Because, see, God took you through a journey, right? One day, you, at one point in time, you were young, and this whole thing I was doing, which may have taken generations, you were young, and things needed to grow. Things needed to expand. Things needed to mature. Things needed to get more growth in them, right? So that happened to you. And then you get to a certain place in a movement or in a life where you're okay now. <laughs> you learned what you needed to learn. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Right? Let me drink and enjoy. I learned. Here's the problem. Does anybody know what dialectic is? I'm sure several people do. But let me just do a really quick thing on dialectic. This is the way that we actually learn. Here's how it goes. You're not quite sure how life works, so you come up with a thesis about it, right? And as that thesis grows and matures, it becomes more and more, wow, this is really working, right? So the thesis is going along, and it's getting more and more mature, and it's growing, and like it really does work. The thesis is true, scientific method. The thesis is true. And then what happens is at some point in time in its growth, you begin to realize that it may be true, but there's some problems with it. So some stuff starts stacking up over here, even while you're getting growth out of it. And all of a sudden, as it gets older and older, the more and more that you see that while it has a lot of strengths, there's also some weaknesses in what it is that you're thinking. We're trying to redo church. The church has gotten in its pattern worship, sermons from talking heads. The church has gotten in its pattern quite old, quite mature, and hardened to where it's hard for God to do anything in it. Not that he can't do anything, but it's hard. You see it? So we're starting to realize, wow, there's a lot of things about educational theory. There's a lot of things about leading in the spirit and actually making it experiential. There's a lot of things that are missing now, and they're stacking up on the other side of this. And so what you all of a sudden generate is an antithesis. We call it an antithesis. An antithesis. Something that comes directly against the thesis. Do you see that? Now, if you're going to get on board with the antithesis, the thing you have to do is to recognize that there's something about that thesis that is going to stop you from ever understanding the antithesis unless you lay it all down. It's not to say there's not still value in it. It's to say that you, the first thing you got to do is be willing to lay it all down so that you can get into a new wineskin, a new growth pattern, a new thing that's developing. Do you see it? And then what happens is the antithesis comes against this mature thesis, and at some point in time, all of a sudden it goes, ah, there's a new synthesis. And that is taking some from the old and some from the new, and there's a new synthesis. And then that new synthesis becomes the new thesis, which as it matures, begins to get hardened and brittle, and then there's a new antithesis, and then there's a new synthesis. Do you see it? Now this is what God's doing. So here's the point. 
okay? If what you want to do is start your growth when you're 20 and end your growth when you're 50 so that you can retire, then by all means, keep drinking the old wine. Do you understand? Because it's better. <laughs> the new stuff, I already did that. <laughs> I did something like it at least, and frankly, it was uncomfortable and it was hard, and I, I learned a lot and I grew a lot, and so I wouldn't trade it, but I'd, I'll have to do it again. <laughs> right? You see what he's saying to him? He's saying, I need you if you're going to actually keep growing in me to engage the next thing that I'm doing. And I sat here a couple of weeks ago and I gave you a manifesto on the church and that I think that God is trying to change his church. And I think we can do one of two things. We can become old wine or we can lay down what we knew and we can pick up a lot of things that we don't quite understand yet. They're not mature. They're still immature and we're still working through it. We can pick up new things and we can either grow with that or we can go ahead and be old wine. Now, trust me, there are days that I'd love to just do the old wine thing. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, I just really like God. And it just feels like if God's trying to do something else, that I'd rather be where he is than where I'd like to be. In fact, I'd like to be where he is. Right? So I go with the new wine. And we do things that are risky and that are challenging and, and that, 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 that call for something out of us as people. Right? I lay down what I knew in order to grow in what he's trying to teach me. Now, that's what Jesus is saying right here. Got it? Now, there's a very unfortunate chapter break right here. You do understand that when Luke was writing it, he didn't write down five, verse, chapter 5, verse 33. This is what the verse is. Now, verse 34, this is what the verse He just wrote down the stuff that God was telling him to write down, right? He just wrote down what he was feeling led to write down. And he didn't put the chapter breaks or the numbers in there. We did that. And we tried to do that with some intelligence so that we wouldn't break up the flow of something. This is a chapter break that breaks up the flow of something, unfortunately. Because actually the point that he's making about new wine and old wine, he's now going to take them through an experience about what that means in a practical way. In fact, in an incredibly deep way. Because look where he goes. Six, chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath day, now, do you remember two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about that miracle where they, the, the friends brought the paralytic and they cut the hole and they let him down, and what we thought Jesus would say to him was, hey, this is really cool, he saw their faith, you're healed. But what does he say instead? Your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees, <gasps> why? Nobody can say your sins are forgiven you, but the one that was offended, who's the one offended? God. He's the one that we sin against. Only you, right? Not to say we haven't done harm to our brothers and sisters, but in the end, sin is defined as us hurting God. So only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, that's right. And so to show you that I can do that, I'm going to heal this guy. Because <laughs> I want you to understand that I'm God. I can forgive sins. By the way, he gave us that ability too, as we looked at when we looked at that. You see that? Because we're his ambassadors, his representatives. We're to bring his heart, his spirit, his spirit, his character, and his nature to the world. But now he's going to talk about Sabbath. What is Sabbath to a Jewish person? Where does it come from? The law. It's not just from the law. The law is, you know, the first five books. What's it actually from? The Ten Commandments. Okay? In fact, we're going to see in a second how much this is, but let's just get there in order. 
One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husk in their hands, ate the grain. Pharisees says, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on Sabbath? Now, where's Sabbath come from? Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. This is, am I right on this one? Is this the fifth commandment? I meant to just confirm that. I'm sure I'm right. It's four God commandments, and then the Sabbath, and then five other ones, right? Somebody who's really good at this stuff. Rich Bixby, you know this answer for sure. But, well, it's the fourth one? Is that right? Somebody do some research. Just look at it in your Bible, would you? The reason why is because there's a way of counting those God ones as three or four. There's a way of counting them differently. That's the reason why there's any confusion about this at all. And I think it's number five, but it doesn't matter. Here's what, it, what are you saying, Will? You're actually in seminary, so I'm going with four. And can, you said it. I'll give it to you now, okay? Because I don't know you, but I know him, and I know he's in seminary, so I'm going to go with him, and you get the credit, all right? That's how it works, Will, right? We told you about collaboration. You, he did the grade for you, okay? All right, now, but the point is, is it's right after the God ones, right? And it goes right into the ones that are about us. It's the transitional one, and the point is, it comes right in the heart of the Ten Commandments. And it's one of the longest ones that he talks about. Look at how long that one is. The other ones are, you know, don't covet, right? But look at how long this one is. Look at this. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord. By the way, when I started talking about Kara and what she came up with, I'm here now. Okay? All right? But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, even your livestock, <laughs> ain't nobody going to work. See what I mean? And foreigners living amongst you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens. Now, where is he locating it? In his experience. In six days I made everything, and on the seventh I rested. On the seventh he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now, uh, we're going to go into this more deeply, but again, I'm just trying to take it step by step so that we really see the, the strength of what Jesus is doing here. So what I want to do right now is I want to show you about something about this particular one that doesn't happen with any of the others. Soon after he gives the Ten Commandments, he revisits it with Moses and says this about the Sabbath. Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. For it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you will know that I'm Yahweh who sets you apart. Observe the Sabbath. It is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. Now, let me just make it clear. I get killing somebody and then you get killed. Eye for eye. I might even get something about blaspheming God in such a way as that you should have to be killed. You know, I, I could come up with an argument that way. But not taking a day off? Kill a person for not taking a day off? And he doesn't just say it once. Work may be done for six, or if anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days. On the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of complete rest dedicated to the Lord. Let me make it really clear right now. Sabbath is not about I work hard and I play hard. Sabbath is not about 
Six days of the week, I work, and man, I drink and, you know, party on that seventh day. This is a day for doing something quite different than that. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath, they must be put to death. He repeats himself. God is not prone to repeat himself unless he actually wants us to know it. <laughs> He's trying to bring it home. The Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. See this? He's not saying that when the law passes away and Christ comes, you should do away the Sabbath. He's saying Sabbath is for all, for all time. And we're going to see why in just one second. But again, I want to do this in an orderly fashion, why this is so important, okay? So now watch. Here's where Jesus goes with this. Jesus replied to them who were challenging him, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. Now, if I'm using this as an argument, here's what I want to point out to you. If I'm Jesus and I'm using this argument, did he say anything in that reply to them about the Sabbath? He actually didn't. You know what he did? He took an even worse case. He said, you've all read the story about David when he was fleeing, and they were very hungry. What did they do? They went into the holy place, and they stole God's bread. You know, you're upset about us breaking a little grain right here. Heck, David went in and stole God's bread. <laughs> you should kill him. But now wait a minute. Everything that God made reveals who he is. His character, his nature, his heart. Do you think that God cares if somebody comes in who's hungry? If somebody's just being lazy and they're just trying to get free bread, okay, maybe he might say no to that, right? But if somebody is fleeing and, this is, and they're trying to save their life and they're coming, do you think God has any issue with having us taking his bread? Is that his character? Is that his nature? That he'd be ticked off at us for taking his bread? What, does he not have enough? You do realize he doesn't need any, do you? Yeah, don't you? He doesn't eat. Why did he ask us to give him the bread in the first place? Why? Because this is what sustains us. And he wanted us to give unto him so that we were saying thank you for giving us provision. That's what that sacrifice is about. It's called a sacrifice. You take, we take from what we've been given and we give unto him recognizing the source of what we've been given. Do you see it? So if God has given us all this provision, do you think that he minds that somebody comes in and takes that bread? No, it's provision. <laughs> right? It was David's provision in that day. And you Pharisees get this about David, but you don't know me. You don't know God. You've got this thing all bass backwards. You got it all twisted and bent up to where it's just wrong. Watch this. I'm going to, uh, Kevin's sermon, I'm going to show you a clip from last week. So if you're here last week, this is a good time to take your nap, okay? Really quick, though, because it's short, all right? But here's the point. Kevin explained the problem with how the Pharisees handled the law as well as I ever could, better than I ever could. And I just thought, why would I, for heaven's sakes, why would I re redo the wheel when God just did it perfectly last week? So I'm just quickly going to show you how this whole law thing gets perverted by Pharisees that were trying to do the right thing by God. 
The Pharisees were not out there trying to say, we're going to mess up God. They were trying to get it right. So take a look at this. So this is God's law, which is a light bulb. Um, insert metaphor about light of the world here. But not where I'm going with this. So if this is God's law, the Pharisees says, we need to try really hard not to break this law. Because this is God's law, and if we break this law, then we're going to end up in exile again, and that's bad. And so they say, ah, here's what we'll do. We'll create another law that will wrap around the law, so that if we break this law, at least we haven't broken God's law. And then they're like, well, that's still a little too close. If we, if we break this one, we still could break God's law. So let's make another law that wraps around that, so that way if we break that one, well, at least we didn't break the other law, so at least we didn't break God's law. So we're still okay. Eh, it's still a little too close, so let's, let's break another law to wrap around that law, to go around that law, around that law. So if we break the law, well, at least we don't break the law, and then the law of the law. And if we broke that one, well, at least it's not God's law, right? So at this point, we have this thing. Is this a light bulb? <laughs> it doesn't really look much like a light bulb, but at least... I didn't break God's law, right? So you see how the Pharisees' line of reasoning, they're the only ones in Israel that are really trying hard to get it right at the time. But do you see how this line of, of reasoning, if you take it all the way through, it always leads to condemnation. It always leads to judgmentalism. And it always leads to never being good enough. Because after all, how are you supposed to follow all that? Law after law after law, this lawception, if you will. I love that word lawception, as in deception. Remember the theme that we're going on today. Everything that God does reveals his character. God gives us a law, and when we look at those ten simple little words, they're, they're pretty reasonable, aren't they? You know, don't kill people and don't covet things and keep God holy and keep the Sabbath. and Pretty reasonable stuff. It gets all twisted up and perverted and it gets all complicated and it gets so large. Now watch what, now watch what happens. The Sabbath becomes a burden for the Jewish person. You can't go, you know... 15 steps is work. 14 steps is not work. So take your chair on, on the day before Sabbath. Take your chair and put it out there 14 feet. And then you can walk out to your chair, because after all, your chair is your house. And then you can walk another 14 feet outside of that. But you can't do the chair twice, because that would be just getting around the law. As if the first thing wasn't getting around the law. Now, it's much worse than that. The person that is experiencing Sabbath as a Jewish person under the pharisaical interpretation of it, here's how they feel about Sabbath. God, it's six days of really hard work, and then it's a seventh day where I just got to watch everything. You know what it becomes defined by the Sabbath? You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's what it gets defined by. Now, does that sound like God to you? What kind of a picture of God does that bring you? God is telling you what you can't do all the time. Is that who God is? I mean, right in the garden with that tree, if he was ever going to tell us not to do something, can't do, make that a can't do. <laughs> but he gave us real choice, and etc. And so you, you catch the drift. I want you to think about what was Sabbath for? What did he make it for? Here's what he made it for. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had a real choice. They made that real choice. They got separated from him. 
And the place that they got separated to is a place where they were going to get God's abundant provision. The world, even in its fallen state, still magnifies the abundant provision of God, right? I mean, we're feeding six billion people without a big stretch right now. Now, environmentally, we may be heading into some problems and so on, but right now, people didn't think we could carry this many people. But the world's ability to provide has been unbelievable in terms of its ability to provide. And the thing is, is that should tell you something about God. He's pretty good at providing. And he wants to, even though we've fallen. But now here's the thing about what we're doing out there in the world. It's by the sweat of our brow that we're getting it, right? So what happens with work? Work is a four-letter word, right? Work is a, that's not, that's not what God intended. God did not intend people to have a job at Microsoft. He did not intend people to have, you know, a, 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 a labor job or a, or a white collar job or anything. He intended people to enjoy his presence in the garden and to fellowship with him and to be in relationship and love with him. That's what he intended. And work is this thing that we have to do by the sweat of our brow so that we can survive. And let me just show you how much this is true. Watch this. Work is a four-letter word. Watch this. If you have a job, let's just say that you have the job of your dreams right now. The job that you want. The job that is fulfilling to you. The job that is awesome, right? So now you've got that job, right? There's probably only maybe two people in here that have them, and I'm one of them. So, okay? Right? But now you've got the perfect job. Now, you have to do that job 365 days a year for the rest of your life. There's not a vacation. There's not a day off. There's not a weekend. There's not a Sabbath. There's nothing. What would that job become to you? Work. <laughs> the four-letter word, work. This perfect job, right? You'd be thankful that at least it's better than somebody else's, but you would still be a slave to it because it's dictating to you. How did God make mankind? What did he make him to do? To take dominion. He didn't want the world to be on top of us. He wanted us to be on top of the world. You know what Sabbath is all about? It's God's gift to tell us that you're actually still on top of the world despite the fact that it's in a fallen state and that you're having to do it by the sweat of your brow. This is the day where you can do no work and guess what? You don't die. And nobody else makes you do it. This is the day where you go, oh my God, I was getting swamped and I was getting buried and I was losing perspective and I was losing hope and I was losing joy in life and now I've got this day where I'm going, wow, it's beautiful outside and God made so much and it's incredible and I get to rejoice in him. You see it? That's holy and separated unto the Lord. This is enjoying the day as something that he has given to me to rejoice in to enjoy. You see it? Now what does that tell you? What kind of God, if the God that does that, how do you think about God right now? What kind of God does that communicate? Pretty cool, right? <laughs> a God that loves you. A God that even though you've fallen, he's given you so much. And he's still there providing for you. Still there protecting you. Still there. See that? That's a God you can love. The one who tells you can't, 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 that's not a God I can love. See what I mean? That's just a God I got to fear. Watch out. Duck. You know, stay low. Don't make, a, don't make a fuss. Maybe he'll ignore you. See it? Now this is what Jesus is challenging. 
He's saying, you Pharisees have gotten this thing so perverted that you've perverted people's understanding of me. And rather than falling in love with me and thanking me, they consider it to be a burden and a hardship. So he's challenging them, all right. And here's what he says. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And I'm telling you what these Pharisees said when they heard that. The same thing they said back there when he said he could forgive sins. You can't say that. <laughs> There's only one person who's over the Sabbath. Who? The one that made it. Because he worked six days and then took a day of rest and then gave it to us. That's the only one who could say he's Lord over it, right? So what were they supposed to be getting out of this encounter? That he's God. But just like he did with the paralytic guy, when he said, so I will prove to you, being the Pharisees, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, go home. Because anybody can say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and anybody can say that I can forgive sins. And Jesus is doing what? Now, key word. He's proving that he has the authority to do this by healing somebody. And that's exactly what he's now going to do with the Sabbath. Because the next story, on another Sabbath day, see, that's a week away, that should be a whole other sermon. It's not. It's a connection. He's making a connection on another Sabbath day. Sabbath, ring up. He just said something about Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And now he's going to prove to him that he is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everybody. Boy, he sets us up. So the man came forward. Then Jesus turns to the critics and says, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy one? What is happening right now, right here in front of you? You make the decision. I want to show you what I think to be, if not the most, the only other one that I think could be as uncomfortable as this is the moment where the, one, the, where the religious people brought the woman in adultery and they drew the line in the sand. But I think this one is even worse because of the way that it says it. I want you to show you, I want me to show you what Jesus then did. He challenges them, right? Is this a day for doing something good? You guys, if your ox, he says in another place, if your ox gets stuck in a ditch and it's going to die, you save it on Sabbath. Yet here's a crippled guy. And you're going to judge me for healing him? <laughs> what, he's not worth a cow? Wow, you guys have got this thing screwed up. Now watch what he does, though. He looked around at them one by one. <laughs> I just have to say, I think this is the most, I don't know how long it took, but I'm telling you, you know what a pregnant silence is? I think he was looking at him and he was saying, do you get it? Will you respond? Will you think about what I'm actually saying? Will you ponder this? Will, is, it, is, it, 
isn't it a good thing? Doesn't God want to heal people? Isn't that as hard as nature's character? Do you get it? And are you willing to stand up for him right now? Now understand something. Who's he looking into the eyes of? The very people that are going to kill him. This is not just an abstract plea. Do you get it? Do you see it? Will you say something? Will you step up? Will you? Do you get it? Do you see it? See? I mean, can, can you just imagine? <laughs> you know, do you know who I am? Looking into each one of their eyes, one by one, giving them a moment to make a decision. And then he said to the man, when he's done with that, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand. I love the way it says it. And it was restored. Look at what he didn't do. He didn't put it out there and he says, I heal you. He still gave them a little bit of, it was just restored. Did he do it? Maybe it just happened. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. <laughs> He'd stared them down one by one, and then he helped a man, and for that, they were enraged. There's something really screwing, screwy going on here, isn't it? Isn't there? There's something terribly wrong happening here. They shouldn't be the ones who are upset. Jesus is. <laughs> He's the one that should be upset at this. So here's what I've just done. I've just walked us through a section of Scripture that I believe God laid out for us on purpose to show us something. God is willing to prove things. Now, we need to be just a little careful when we say that because the truth is he proved it to them. I mean, everybody in here is going, how the heck couldn't they see that? So he proved it to them, but do note something. Did they believe? Even with the proof, they were still able to choose elsewise. It's going to be super important for us understanding how these things fit together. I do want to go back, though, and just really quickly, I just want to show us that this whole thing about proving is a problem for God because you do remember, at one point in time, Jesus walked on water, fed 5,000 people, fed 4,000 people, delivered people from demons, delivered a woman with an issue and some blood that nobody else could fix. He did all of these miracles, and then the religious people come to him and say they came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to... See it? To prove it. Now what's his response? He says... You guys are fishermen, you know the days, you know the nights, you know what happens with the weather. You guys are farmers and, you know, you get the seasons. You can't see this, but then he gets to this place. Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. This word evil, why is it evil? Well, because from beginning to end, the Bible is filled with real choice. In the garden, real choice. In the beginning of the law, watch this. The message is very close to you. When he's giving them the law, he's saying, I've give, I'm sending before you a path, two different paths. Make a choice. 
This is not an illusory choice. I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to read this and see whether or not there's any chance whatsoever that God isn't giving them a real choice. Because the only way you can read that and, and say that is, is that he's just obviously deceiving them. Because look what he says to them. The message is very close at hand. It's on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. What did he just say? You can obey it. What do are, what are the post-reformers say? You can't. That's not what the word says. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster, a real choice. I command you this day to love the Lord your God and keep his commandments, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you a... between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth also to witness the... I'm really not trying to go into this post-reform thing, but it's important, okay? You know, the angels would know, you know, you didn't really give them a choice. You made them that way. Now, Romans, Paul says, if he did make us that way, so what? He could do that, right? I mean, he's God. He can do anything he wants to do. But in the end, what's his character and his nature? What does he do? And how does he do it? If he wants to do it, he can, and who are you to argue? But understand, God has chosen to do things in a way that you can know his character, his nature. So what he says is, is, is today I've given you a choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. They know that it was a real choice, and they're seeing the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You hear his cry? Oh, choose right. <laughs> Please choose right. Is it real? The choice that we have and the issue that he has with, with proving? He's got to keep us in this place of if he just showed up and he was standing right in front of us and he was, we couldn't deny his existence and all this kind of stuff, it would be a lot harder to make that choice. We still could make it. But it would be a lot harder to make. But even more, you know, Satan comes to Jesus and says this. The Psalms say you'll never get hurt. So prove that you're God by jumping off the cliff. <laughs> What's his answer? This is not right. <laughs> you don't test the Lord your God. What you're asking me to do is evil. In fact, what he says next is he says it's evil and it's adulterous. Why is it adulterous? Who should have understood the nature and character of God more than anybody on earth and his chosen people? The Jews, the ones he's been working with and have seen all these choices that he laid before them and they chose wrong and exactly what he said happened. And then they chose right and good things happened. They should know this stuff better than anybody else. Right? And so he says, the reason why you don't know it is because you've gone after somebody else. In fact, at one point he says, you are of your father the devil. You got this whole thing bass backwards. You have messed this up. You've got this thing wrong, 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 wrong. And now I just want to do this with us. 
my speech and my proclamation, says Paul. Listen to the argument that Paul's making. Now understand, I just proved that God uses proofs, and I just proved that God has a big problem with proof. But I want to show you how Paul witnessed, because what we're actually going after is, is how are we supposed to do this? My speech and my proclamation, says Paul, a disciple like us, were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. When I'm going to witness to somebody, you know what I think about? What am I going to say to them? I'm praying that God will give me the right words to say. Isn't that you too? When you're going back home for Thanksgiving, aren't you thinking about what, you, what you're going to say, what they're going to say, what you're going to say? What would happen if you went back to Thanksgiving and they said, I don't believe in God, and you said, you have cancer. Here, bam, you're in field of cancer. Now what do you say? I had a discussion time planned for this, and we're not going to do it. I'm trying to get out of the talking head mode, but this talking head keeps talking too long. So I'm just going to finish the sermon. I really, really, really want to do a discussion, but I also want to try and do it within the framework of the service length that we have, and we're experimenting with it. Thank you for that grace. So I'm just going to finish it and get to the conclusion. I, I hate that because I'd rather do the discussion. I think, there's a, I, think it would, I think we'd all learn a lot more. Get in a small group that talks about the sermon, okay? So that you can, you know, or even if you're in a small group, just talk about the sermon so that somehow this thing gets down inside of us because here's the thing. We've already seen that you could go heal your person back at Thanksgiving and they wouldn't. They'd get healed and they could still not believe. We've already seen that. So it's not proof in the, in the way that we think of proof as in you could not make any other determination. No, remember something. God gave us absolute free will. You can have the most obvious truth staring you right in the face. Jesus Christ, God himself, and still choose to kill him. <laughs> Despite only thing he ever did was heal people and help them. I mean, if Jesus had done some really bad things, kill him. <laughs> but what did he do to deserve it? People's ability to have free will choice is remarkable. <laughs> and we use it to screw ourselves up bad all the time, right? Three weeks ago, we came to the conclusion in a discussion that God does, in fact, use healing in order to expand his kingdom. And I want to just see a show of hands on this one. How many people in here began their walk with Christ? It doesn't ever end on miracles. Eric Lee showed us it's not about the miracles in the end. It's the same thing that Kevin was saying, even though it helps your walk and so on. But the bottom line is, how many people in here, at least you started your walk with God in something that was miraculous in some way? How many people in here? Now, that's still... That's about what I was expecting, which is, what is, was that, 40% of the room, something like that? There's still a lot of other ways that people come to the Lord. I raised my hand because the miracle that happened to me was, is that I said a prayer unto God, a God who I did not think, belong, I didn't believe in and I didn't think was there, and I was just doing it to do something formal. And I heard him listening to me. Now, I don't know how I heard him listening to me to this day. I, don't, I can't explain that to you. But what I can tell you is, is suddenly I was quite shocked to discover that there was a God that was listening to my prayer. And that started the journey on which I am still on, right? I consider that to be a miracle. I consider that to be a revelation of him to me. 
In fact, here's what the scripture says. Unless he draws, nobody comes. But here's the principle. Here's the thing I want us to walk away with. Because I want us to become effective agents of his will. And what we discovered a couple of weeks ago was is God does, in fact, bring people to salvation through miracles, signs and wonders. Did it in the scriptures. He does it with us now. It happens. Right? But that's never the end of it, is it? If we built our faith upon miracles, we would be building our faith upon something very shaky. We don't build it. Peter says, you know what? I saw Jesus Christ transfigured. And I saw all the miracles he did. And I have something more sure. I have this thing that's inside of me that knows that he's real because I've come into relationship with him and it's growing in my life and things are changing and it's done, made differences in me that I could never have made myself. I tried, couldn't make them. All kinds of stuff is happening in my life. More and more and more and more. And here's what I want to say. God starts a thing with touch with everybody. He starts a thing with touch. When he's trying to show people that he's God, what does he do? I know that you don't believe it. I know you just think I'm saying it. A lot of other people have said it too. So I'm going to do something that those other people didn't do. I'm going to do miracles and show you that it's real, what I'm saying about forgiveness and Sabbath. So it begins with touch. But where does it end? It never ends with touch. It ends with faith. What's another word for faith? Love. Trust. Intimacy. God starts with touch and leads to intimacy. And here's what I want to say. When you go back for Thanksgiving and you're trying to minister to a family member, understand that God has had them on a journey since the minute that they were born until right now. And it may be that they're at a place in time right now to where they need a touch. And he knows they need a touch. And if you do not go expecting God to touch them, then they will not be touched because you're not expecting it. And when God says to touch, then you won't do it and they won't be healed or they won't be delivered or the miracle won't happen that he meant to bring to their life. We are the instruments of his will. And if we do not move his will, this is very bad theology right now, his will is thwarted. Now I want to say, no, it isn't because God's totally in control. Understand the paradox. But what I want to say is, is God has chosen to move through us and we're the ways that things are going to happen in the world because we are the ones who are willing to do it. And here's where this changes me right now. I can tell you that I've been preaching for 20-some years that people should not expect God to prove anything. Do you know what I now think after this week and this study because of what God's revealing to me? that I need to be very open to the fact that God may want to touch somebody and prove something to them. I can tell you there's a pastor that I know. Actually, I don't know the pastor. I know the guy. And the guy was talking to me, and he said I was a nominal Christian. I thought I was a Christian. As near as I knew, I was a good Christian. I went, and I started talking to my pastor. My pastor said, you don't know God. And he said, what do you mean I don't know God? Who are you to say I don't know God? And the guy said this to him. He said, I pray that God will wake you up in a cold sweat and show you who he really is. I'm not pointing at you for any reason. I pointed at that <laughs> empty chair next to Jay. Do you see it? Now, you could say if you were, right, you could say auto-suggestion, right? They put it in a suggestion. What I can tell you is, is that a few nights later, that guy woke up in a cold sweat and God was revealing himself to him. 
Now, I don't think that pastor did an honest suggestion. I choose to believe and think it's true, as I've asked the Lord about it, that what God did was he gave that pastor a word and that he spoke the word that he was supposed to speak to that guy. Now, now, when you go back for Thanksgiving and your family member is telling you, I don't believe in God, do you really want to say to them, I pray that God wake you up in a cold sweat and show you how real he is? Does that sound like a good Thanksgiving thing to do? And if we don't do it, then we have not been his instrument. And even though he may get his will in some other way, he didn't get it the way that he wanted to through us. And we have to be willing to do that. I'm telling you, I'm now approaching the moments in time at which I've got healing for. By the way, Julie just had a plane ride, and it was one of those miracle things where she was practicing this too, and she just was all over this guy. In, in incredible ways. I found a gal coming down the elevator where I live, and this gal was, is losing her mom, and the mom is so cool, really old gal, but really cool. And, and so she's dying, and the woman was, and I made a mistake. You know, I knew I was supposed to pray for her right there, and I was supposed to say, do you want me to pray for you? And then I was supposed to listen to what God would tell me to pray for her, and then I was supposed to pray that. I knew I had this perfect moment and I let, it, I let her go. And then I felt, I walked just a few steps, and I went, man, I made a mistake, and I turned around, and I couldn't find her. God, save that woman, and do the work that you wanted to do through me. Do that work for her. You see what we are? We're his instrument is his hand to be finely willed. There may be another time when God is not going to touch them because he's trying to teach them something else. Yesterday, we memorialized Pete Becker. Pete Becker was not healed from MS. MS ultimately, in essence, killed him. I believe in healing. I prayed for Pete's healing. You are going to lose it if you try and put all this in a formula. You are going to win if you realize it's bigger than you at every single moment and the only thing God is ever asking you to do is be obedient. And when you get your moment, ask him if this is the moment and if it is, go. And ask him what it is he wants you to go in and then just go. <laughs> right? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray that this entire body become go. As somebody said to me yesterday, two-thirds of your name in English is go. <laughs> so God, let that be our walk that we go. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, make us to go. Teach us to go. Teach us. You're giving us tools to be more confident. We now know that you will prove things sometimes. Hey, we want to use that. You've given us your word about that you will use it to bring people to salvation. God, do that through us. We are here. Send us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we are here. Send us. You are teaching us how to do this. Don't just let it be a talking head and then we walk out of here and don't do anything with it. God, make our feet get lined up with what you're trying to say to us and let us become the instruments of your will ever more finely, ever more purely, ever more perfectly, ever more you. In Jesus' holy and precious name. This is the prayer of this body together. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, take this communion that's before you.
reach into that lower cup in which is this body of Christ that had to be broken because we had broken our lives. God, we just don't got it right. So we take our finger and we put it down in there and we recognize that we haven't understood these things. And so we break this thing. And we say that we have not been good instruments of your will because despite the fact that we should have known, we just didn't. And we ask you to forgive us and we thank you that you do. And now we ask you to use us and we thank you that you do. And the first thing we ask for God is to heal us. And so by his stripes, we are made whole. He was broken that we might be re-knit. In Jesus' holy and precious name, take this body together. Thank you, God. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup in which is the life that you have already determined for us since before there was even in us. And the minute that Jesus spilled his blood, that life is fully realized. And it is only up to us to walk into it. And even then, we say, help us. And so when we take this cup, we remember all that you have done for us. And we say, make us to be that. Take together in Jesus' name.